Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. Today's guest is the philosopher, teacher, and prolific author Simon Critchley. I've been friendly with Simon for some years now, and I come away from each encounter with him feeling a little smarter from the insights he shared and a little dumber just in comparison to his quick intellect, Um, but it's good to have a friend like this. Simon has written numerous books, but I think the best one to read first would be The Book of Dead Philosophers, which covers philosophy from the pre-Socratics up to the late 20th century by analyzing the manner of each philosopher's death and how their philosophy might have impacted the way that they met it. It's a really great conceit for learning the macro history of philosophy in a clever, comprehensive way. I also really like his book, um, Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, which is about the Greek tragic plays and playwrights. Simon has a longstanding fascination with the ancient world, um, something that I share with him. And then there's the book on Hamlet that he wrote with former apology guest and longtime apology friend, the psychoanalyst Jameson Webster. That one is called um, Stay Illusion, the Hamlet Doctrine. Simon has also written wonderfully about topics like David Bowie, suicide, deconstruction, um, the poet Wallace Stevens. It's a very wide variety of things that he covers. Um, But another good book to get an overview of Simon's approach to thinking and life is called How to Stop Living and Start Worrying. Um, That one is made up of a few chapters of lengthy interviews with Simon. Simon teaches philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York City. He is an avid Liverpool football fan, and he is just about finished writing a book about mysticism, which I was glad to hear as it's also a big interest of mine. Um, I can't wait to read what Simon has to say about it. But I'm curious to hear what Simon's take is on just about anything. And so, yeah, now here we have Simon Critchley on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? Thanks to you and thanks to the Apology Podcast. I um, One of the last books I read was Warren Ellis's Nina Simone's Gum, which I actually found incredibly you know the right book at the right moment insofar as i'm i'm writing this other book which maybe we'll talk about but it it ends with me trying to talk about music in the same breath i'm I'm thinking about devotional objects and uh devotional objects in um in relation to religious practice and uh nina simone's gum becomes a devotional object a kind of holy relic and i found that very compelling. So I got that into the conclusions of the text I'm, I'm writing. And uh, then I'm reading, right now I'm reading, um, I mean, with me, I have a copy of Michel de Certeau's The Mystic Fable, okay. Volume 2, which came out in 2015, which is is a very strange, interesting figure. Michel de Certeau was a, was a Jesuit and a psychoanalyst who died in 1980. Six and uh, this is a um, sort of posthumously published work which I'm looking at, which is odd. I'm reading um, uh, a book on the internet by someone called um, Justin Smith, who's a very good philosopher who I knew back in the day, um, and he's now in Paris. And it's called "The Internet Is Not What You Think," which mm-hmm. is a kind of history of the internet, taking it back to the philosopher Leibniz in particular which is all 
true. And, and Leibniz's 17th century fantasy of building a computer or a calculating machine, mm. which would translate all natural language into symbols, into algebra. Uh, and he, you know, had sketches of this. And then <laughs> the internet is that. And I'm also just going to pick up very soon a book by Hal Foster, who I ran into the other week, mm. uh, Primitive Brutalism, which is um, which looks really good. And I keep picking that up and putting it down, but I've been obsessed with what I'm doing. So I tend to read quite instrumentally. Another book I've been, which I really, really strongly recommend, and also because it's impossible to get, you can get it through illegal downloads, but yeah. it's, been, it's been out of print since 1996, is... Um, Julian Cope's Trout Rock Sampler. Yes, wonderful book. Yeah, and uh, so I, I mean, I, I recommend that really. And that, I, I was connecting that in my mind, at least with the Warren Ellis material and lots of other things as well. You know, what it is to write, uh, well, not intelligent, just to write well about about music. Um, and yeah, so I recommend that. So that, that those are the things that I've got around me at the moment. That's quite a mix. I mean, I know that you're writing right now about mysticism, right? That's the main focus yes. in your work. And um, that it doesn't all touch on mysticism. So you do read outside of, of what you're particularly, what you're specifically working on. I'm a promiscuous reader. I always have been. I mean, I just, I tend to, um, I mean, I have a monomaniacal slant in terms of what I'm working on. I'm working on obsessively. And this year has been very much like that. And then I just kind of read around, um, things just fall into my lap and, um, and then I'll read that. And so there's, there's a kind of, um, yeah, a promiscuousness and also a fact that, you know, I don't, I don't care if I've finished something or not. And the idea of unread books, I've always found very compelling. I like books being around unread kind of lying there. Mm. And then sometimes you pick them up and sometimes you don't. So I, I tend to, and I also, I I can't believe in chance that you're just, you're just full upon things. So when you emailed me, I was listening to the podcast, Warren Ellis thought, yes, of course, <laughs> that's exactly, I mean, so his, his relationship to that gum, Nina Simone's gum as a, uh, and turning that into a kind of holy relic, uh, an, an artwork, but also a, a devotional object, which somehow incarnates, animates the, um, in an objective form, what is going on in her music is exactly what I was trying to think about in relationship to, um, uh, to, to mysticism where you get, for example, you know, there would be a whole pilgrimage route in France based around uh, Christ's tooth. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's San Medar, the, the church of San Medar where they had Christ's tooth. And so Christ's tooth or Nidia Simone's gum are these, I mean, these uh, I'm very interested in, objects that become animated, uh, rituals around them, and what those rituals are, are doing. And that's part of the interest in mysticism. That the, I mean, because an idea that we, we've had certainly in, in philosophy and in, let's say, natural science, is that the world is just kind of, uh, the, the world is a kind of collection of dead objects just out there in a, and, um, and we've got over the idea of an animistic universe that's gone with what they call modernity. Mm. And uh, I just don't think that's true. I think that we live in um, an animated universe and um, 
something like uh, music is a way of thinking about that animated animistic universe and then things like a piece of gum can kind of uh, betoken that uh, what's animated and what's alive in that and that's this, this is what we do in ritual activity devotional activity things like that and that interests me a lot um you know what what kind of thing worship is and what's going on in that and the kind of thing that people uh dismiss as superstition uh interests me more and more as mm-hmm. uh as as i go on do, do you have your own sort of personal totems or or, or sort of self-defined relics that are important to you i have you know things like a you know there's a little um you know octopus in a piece of uh glass on my desk and there are certain things that I'll touch or like a, a ring which I'm wearing which is my grand my grandfather's ring that my grandmother kept after my grandfather died in 1968 uh, my grandmother kept until she died in 2001 then she gave it to me mm. and uh, I carried that with us so there's a sense in which you know and that's it, it's a ring it's just a piece of gold but in my mind that is some kind of an object which uh, which betokens my connection with with her, a kind of memory of her. So, um, and then I, I, you know, I I'm a big, um, uh, a huge uh, soccer fan. Oh uh, yeah, it's a big part of my life. That's what I was doing yesterday afternoon. And for the first time since it, since the before time, really, since the before time, I went back to the Grafton on first and eighth, uh, and went to see Liverpool play with some of my old Liverpool friends. And um, then when you're watching a game, the ball is the devotional object. The right. ball is animated. The, right. the ball is just a piece of plastic amalgam. Right. We know that, you know, filled with air. That's, but it, no, it takes on a life. It takes on a, it has a whole magical set of qualities in the game. And I'm very interested in what goes on in, in those kinds of activities in what we think of as sport. You know, um, in sport, you know, certainly in, in, in soccer, we we inhabit a kind of magical world. Yeah. Uh, oh, and that magic is 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 based in an idea of hope, right? That you can. Um, that's the strange thing that the um, as people say about football, it's not the um, it's not you know it, it's it's the it's not defeat that kills you. It's the hope that kills you, right? Uh The fact that you can begin every game and you think, ah, we're going to win. It's going to happen. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't, but I'm very interested in that relationship to things, which is uh, about a kind of expectancy, a kind of um, the objects. So like Nina Simone's gum can be an object that carries a whole, um, a whole kind of network of, sense and meaning Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and also you know relationship to that this is after her death say this is a way in which she she lives on through this you know discarded partial little object and it's uh that's not entirely stupid that's uh that's significant i think i think it's quite moving actually yeah Mm -hmm. yeah is there is there a sort of parallel between the um the aspect of hope you're talking about with regard to sport and the aspect of hope in religious practice. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I mean, yes. I mean, I'm very, I'm pretty firmly against hope. I think hope is a, a dangerous concept. And I also like to think against myself. So I'm, 
the way this 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 really became concrete to me was I did this this series of essays uh, when I was living in Athens in 2019, uh, which were based around objects, around things, mm. and um, like the um, the remains of the uh, the remains in Elefsina or Eleusis of the um, uh, the rituals, the ritual sites, and then the the original. A location of the academy of Plato's academy in Athens and then the last one that I was going to do and I began to write it and then the series you know they decided it was too much I'd done too much stuff there was this little church um tiny tiny little church no bigger than a you know like a 12 foot by eight foot room and uh it wasn't open but I managed to find out through a friend, a way of opening it. I went in there, and in the middle of this room, tiny room, is a column, a Corinthian column that dates probably from the 5th century of the Christian era. And around that column are uh, tied little um, little objects and, and ribbons, a lot of ribbons, uh, red ribbons usually. And this is somewhere, this, this, is, this is a ritual practice which was has been used... And it's been used for about 4,000 years when you go back into the history of this. It sits on top of a river, a tiny river, one of the, the concealed rivers of Athens, the um, the Elysus. And um, people believe that if you made an offering at this place, uh, someone that you know who had fever, had a dangerous fever, that fever could be alleviated. Mm. And I'm very interested in that, that structure that um, obviously you can know that's not true, right? There's no correlation between tying a ribbon on a column at a certain place and uh, someone that you love's fever disappearing. But it's that, it's the ritual practice where that is kind of bound up with it, that you 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 do things with a kind of an expectancy that you will perhaps be able to influence the outcome of yeah. life. And, and often that is connected with... Um, well, obviously, I mean, in, in Christianity, you know, that turns around the the strange thing, which is the Eucharist, which is a, mm. a symbol of both death, uh, you know, memory of the the crucified Christ, and and uh, and eternal life, the resurrected Christ, and that little wafer, that little piece of consecrated bread, is. Um, a kind of is a kind of material symbol of something that is simply impossible that we can have life and death at the same time, and I mean I, I'm, I find myself being um, increasingly interested in those kinds of absurdities. Right, uh, I find them really compelling, and um, I've got a lot more to say about that. But those are kind of some yeah some thoughts. Were Were you raised religiously, or what kind of background does your family come from in terms of spirituality? My family is socially Catholic. So my family is all from Liverpool, and uh, Liverpool is kind of uh, a socially Catholic city, which is in England but not of England. Mm. It has this very strange relationship to the country that it happens to be in. So because bit. it's a it's a port town, does that have something to do with it? It's a port. It's a place of you know. It's about shipping, trade, movement, um, migrants, people coming. From, everybody's from elsewhere again. A little like New York. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, John Lennon uh, said, or at least I, I want him to have said at some point that, that New York reminded him of New York on a certain day in a certain light reminded him of Liverpool. And there's a there's a kind of truth to that that you know the New York Liverpool 
uh, you know, sea route was, you know, one of the core sea routes for, for, for hundreds of years. Right. And there is a similarity between the two cities. So they're cities where you're, you're in a country, but not really of that place. And so my family were from there and uh, my mother's family is um, Irish Catholic and my father's family were kind of, I suppose, to, at some level, you know, aspirationally Protestant. Mm. But I had, I had absolutely no religion in my uh, background. I was sent to Sunday school for a couple of weeks, but that is, it, yeah, it, it all came in much later on, my interest in religion in my 20s, actually. Does socially Catholic mean that you're sort of like you? Is that such things as like Catholic guilt and the attraction to ritual? That's 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 what it means to me. That's what yeah. I yeah yeah. Well, yeah, attraction to ritual. Uh, a, a kind of sense in which you know, a, a kind of a, a sense of a sense of community, a sense of all being in in things together, a sense of you know dependency on others. Um, so individualism is a kind of uh, disastrous mistake that. Mm if we're in this, we're in this together. And religion is a way of, you know, religion is a social phenomenon, as someone like Emil Durkheim argued in the 19th century, early 20th century. And and that's where we begin. And so, and that's, um, and I suppose the, what I'm um, against is the idea of religion as some inner state of belief or disbelief. It's the idea, you know, when people ask the question, well, do you or do you not believe in God? Yeah. I think that's a, that's not not the issue. The issue is really for me about, about practices, about what you do and about... Um, so I'm much more interested in that, in the kind of devotional ritual aspects of religion and the ceremonial aspects of religion and thinking about that in relationship to other areas of life that are perhaps, you know, or are important, but maybe more straightforward. Like in many ways, the mysticism project is also a, about music and how to make sense, or how, how can I make sense of what, why, why music is so important to me, and how can I make sense of what what it does? And that's also a kind of a slightly pandemic-related mm. issue that. Uh, I got through the pandemic, a lot of other people too, with a, with with by listening to a lot of music, often on my own, sometimes with other people, in in ways which were nostalgic and sometimes exploratory, but always significant. And what's going on in that? What's going on when you're you're listening to a piece of music that's say rather old on a on a on an ordinary streaming service like Spotify, and yet it's able to um summon a whole world a whole a whole universe comes into view and you can share that with someone you know and you can talk and um you know, talk in a kind of shorthand uh, around musical references and musical illusions and i right. and what's going on with that and what kind of what kind of world is that and how do we um how do we kind of ex- how do we begin to explain the so, music, so, so in a sense, one way of putting it is that I think it's an, I think it's impossible to be an atheist when you're listening to the music that you love. Yeah. At that point, at that point, in a sense, there is belief, right? There is, there is all of the apparatus of religion is kind of in play, and um, and that really interests me. And I think, and also that in relationship to to popular music, to ordinary music, mm-hmm. uh, the music that people actually like. 
uh, I think is really uh, that interests me uh, interests me a lot, and I've been trying to think about that um, recently. Is there something? Um, it seems that there's something transcendent about listening to the music that you love. There's something like that puts you in touch with something more universal, and that kind of sounds like yeah. the, the experience of mysticism as well. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, 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 yeah. You you connect to something vast there is um and this is you know so in many ways where does um so we can say mysticism is that it's a, yeah what is mysticism was it's a long 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 story but um to, to 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 summarize it really brutally you can say where does mystical experience go in the modern world it goes into um aesthetic experience it goes yeah. into it so for example if you think of say i don't know um uh emerson crossing Boston Common and imagining himself to be a what he calls a vast transparent eyeball mm. kind of refracting everything that's around reflecting and refracting everything that's around him and being that everything at that moment so a feeling of um epiphany in relationship to an environment in relationship to space and um and you can find that in you know a whole number of writers I mean you could pick any bundle of rice as you're going to find that um you know one obvious place would be somewhere like the the way epiphany pops up in 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 james joyce in portrait of the artist and the character of stephen dedalus and in ulysses where you get this kind of so you get you get you see stephen dedalus on the beach as it were uh with all the things which he is there to read he says this ineluctable modality of the visible signature of all things i am here to read and he then lists all the things that he finds on the beach so that so that's that sense in which there is um there is a kind of possible aesthetic connection to the whole a kind of secular mysticism if you like i think I mean, that's there in, you know, literature and poetry and all of that. But I think it's really, it really comes alive in making sense of our of musical experience and how how music uh, opens up the world. And um, so I've been thinking about that, gosh, in all sorts of different different ways, you know, Julian Cope, Krautrock Sampler, um, songs like um, Hello Gallo by Noi, Oh yeah, and and uh, early and the, the, and that kind of those kind of tracks which are, which give up you know all of the apparent, apparent structure of a, like a rock song, um, and develop these kind of syncopated metoric beats which are which are kind of exploring a kind of universe of aesthetic restriction in a way of, of stripping away, and. Um, and that, and also, I was thinking about that in relationship to. I did this uh, conversation in uh, earlier this year with Brian Eno. It was terrifying. Yeah. But, um, I was reading a lot of Eno's um, thoughts and his diary from the 1990s, and thinking about what he says about generative music mm. and environmental yeah. music, and the way in which uh, music can in a sense, take on an almost um, autonomous character, right? Yeah. If you, you know, think of from his experiments from discrete music through to uh, more recent pieces like Lux and music for installations and mm-hmm. uh, reflection. And, you know, once you've inserted a few uh, variations into the program, the music will generate 
infinitely um and it will never be the same and it will um it's so it's, it's unlike live music and it's unlike recorded music it's a kind of a different uh it's almost a it's, it's the, the the creation of a, of a of a of a new kind of synthetic reality i find that really interesting um yeah yeah there's some kind of there's some aspect of like a god or something in that kind of chance that's outside of our control like when the machine takes over yeah, I think so. There's almost it, it's yeah. There is almost a there's almost a uh, a godlike quality to, to music. I think at that at that point, and it's uh, and then and I'm very interested in the um, in in surrender in the idea of surrender. Mm. Yeah, and um, you know, and it's it's something we don't think about. We think of ourselves for the most part as agents who do things and as actors in the world, whereas in relationship to huge areas of our lives, like love and sex and um, intoxication and drugs and things like that, we we are involved in in surrender and giving yeah. giving ourselves up. And I think music is about that. Music is about that experience of surrender and and submission to something which uh, you know love and trust, and then also which will create huge new surprises for you and then you'll you find some new artists and that will completely blow you away so yeah. that kind of you know um how would i put that as a another concept it, it's uh it's i think i stolen this from eno but it i really like it it's idiot glee hmm. it's idiot glee and idiot glee as a a sheer mad joy at the fact of the world and in many ways what i'm trying to do now um, for reasons that I don't really fully understand, is to really try and pick away at the tendency towards uh, melancholia, which is very common in in forms of philosophical thinking and other types of thinking, and a tendency towards irony and cynicism, and trying to think about the idiot glee side of life, and uh, and that is something which you know happens in music a lot happens in other areas of life as well yeah comedy for example yeah when you talk about idiot glee i'm reminded of this i don't know well i haven't been able to read any of your of your new book on mysticism but i, I think somewhere else in in something you wrote or talked about there was this idea this dichotomy between male and female mystics and how male mystics were more apt to be contemplative in in their experiences but female mystics were apt to be um very embodied, you know, and kind of let themselves go in a much more physical, rapturous kind of a way. And that sounds yeah. like a kind of idiot glee to me. Yeah, it's a kind of a, uh, I mean, there's, um, it, it's really interesting. And, and the, the mysticism book is, I mean, I haven't actually, it, it so doesn't matter what day it, it does. It, last Friday, let's say last Friday, <laughs> I, I knew it was, uh, I knew it was finished and now I'm just, I'm fiddling and uh, refining and fiddling some more and tweaking things around. But the thinking is, is, is done. And it's, um, I mean, somewhere you've got, uh, you know, we, you know, there, there's a, there's an issue here about how, I mean, the, you know, what, what I'm really bad at as a, someone that's meant to, to write and think is um, explaining what I'm up to. So when the last year, people have said, what are you doing? Uh, so I'm writing a book on mysticism. 
And they say, what it's about? And at which point I just go quiet. I can't, I don't know. It's almost like a superstition for me that if the thought process hasn't finished, I don't want to, um, I don't want to explain. I know that the thing will, the thing will find the form that it finds if I give it the time that it needs. And that's a long period of time and it will happen. But I really don't know what I'm, doing at that point it's it's um when things are going well it's kind of taking shape and when it's not going well it's not taking shape mm-hmm. but i can't so i'm really bad at the um the elevator pitch you know yeah or the proposal you know this book is about this this book will change your life here's one idea you need to <laughs> rethink the universe 10 ways uh, mysticism can work for you yeah, rules for life. I'm, no, I can't do that. I just, there's, for me, there's almost a kind of um, a refusal to, and then to just to follow this. There's a, a line of thought, and I've learned to trust that over the years. And then if I follow that, if I almost, you know, um, like a kind of devotional practice, if I, if I sit for long enough uh, and attend to the thing, it will take shape eventually and then it will be done and then and then some point after that i'll be able to talk about it yeah well i mean it occurs to me that for some of our listeners that even the term mysticism they're not quite sure what we mean by it could you give me like just a very layperson's definition of what we mean when we say mysticism right um well there is an awful lot to say but you could say I mean, one way of thinking about it would be to that mysticism is a kind of um, uh, fluid openness between thought and existence. So, thinking and what we what we attend to, the world, the space where we live, that there's a kind of openness to that. So, so in many ways, mysticism is about the um, the possibility of something like ecstasy, mm. uh, ecstasy as a as as a lived a lived experience, uh, and um, the the religious mystics, the the Christian mystics who interest me in particular, were were uh, were coming to that ecstasy on the basis of the reading of um, scripture, the adoption of a whole series of practices, prayer. Uh, prostrations, uh, fasting, you know, all these, uh, all bodily restrictions in the case of the female mystics. I mean, it can be, you know, the extreme forms of what now would be self-harm, throwing themselves in rivers or jumping into uh, hot ovens. And this would be a way of kind of attempting to kind of discipline the body, the self, in a way that would open it to, um, in, in in their case, the love of God. Right? Uh, a love of God, not as a kind of intellectual love of God, but as something experienced, as something um, emotional, uh, mm-hmm. something affective. So what interests me in particular is this: these traditions of um, what they call affective piety, right? The, uh, where it's the relationship to, uh, to religion, religious practice, relationship to the divine, is something which is emotionally articulated. You can see how that would connect together with with music in very uh particular yeah. way. and then you know and and the i mean the big problem with definitions is that um 
mysticism as a term wasn't used until uh, the 17th century. Oh, wow. And it was, and it was used uh, from very early on as a form of abuse. You know, that's just mysticism. That's, uh-huh. you know, we have reason and science and good things like that. And what you're saying is mysticism. So mysticism is one of those terms that originates as a form of um, uh, a form of abuse. And so the mystics, I mean, before the 17th century, there were thousands of years of people that were mystics, but they didn't think of themselves as mystics. They were just people who were religious or contemplatives or spiritual people what we say now so in many ways the the very term is 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 a uh, is peculiar and mysticism was only really used as a, a common term to describe uh, a set of phenomena in the 19th century and then you get it picked up by thinkers like william james in the varieties of religious experience right. very interesting stuff but the it's more like for me it's a the mysticism is the uh, a condition of, of of flow a condition of flow between what is inside you and what's outside you and the, and the possibility that what's inside you can connect to what's outside of you in some, in some way that is significant. And, um, and that's, um, so there's a kind of um, connection between mysticism and forms of uh, cosmology of thinking mm-hmm. about the universe and, uh, and, you know, and, um, and there's tons, yeah, there's tons of things, tons, tons of other things to say about it. But it's, like, it's fascinating. It's like experiencing a sense of vastness in, in, in one regard, I think. Yeah, another place to begin would be, um, you know, um, here we are in New York and the great novel of New York, or one of the great novels of New York is Moby Dick. In the sense, it begins, in, it begins with uh, Melville begins Moby Dick uh, with this amazing, impossible kind of camera shot over... Uh, over New York Harbor, he somehow, you see that the book begins with him looking kind of up in the air, somewhere suspended above the, the Varazano Bridge, looking uh, towards uh, the Isle of the Manhattos, as he calls it. And he says, um, what's happening there? Look, I'm looking at the edge of this, this island. Here are people coming down to the edge of the island. Um, the water gazers, he calls them. All right. The water gazers. What are the water... And he, and he gives this very clear topography of lower manhattan places like corlier's hook and um and he describes it in great detail and then these people are coming down to the edge of the water and looking at water and melville asks, well what is it why are they looking at water what do they hope to find there and uh, he says um you know in 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 the observance of water there is the the mysterious phantom of life and he mm. uh, the mysterious phantom of life and that's um and that kind of really interests me that there's something to, so to that extent what's mysticism well mysticism could be just the the experience you have in observing a body of water right yeah. <laughs> and and whatever that whatever that feels like whatever that does well that's yeah that's your oceanic feeling and that's um and that's something that we know it's just a it's just me and it's just some water and the water doesn't care about me yet you know we have these thousands and thousands of years where that uh, relationship to water takes on significance ritual significance um all sorts of cultures all across the world who've 
uh, you know, bathed in water, like the you know, sacred rivers, like the Ganges, or uh, where the god has been a god that's been uh, ritually uh, killed and thrown into the water, like with Adonis myths in all across the Eastern Mediterranean. So, so uh, it can be something. It can be something like that, or looking at the you know, the vast Pacific in Los yeah. Angeles. I would hope that at this point, um, some of our listeners are wondering what they can read to kind of get started on mysticism. So I have kind of a a two yeah. a two prong question. Um, what is a good entry point for a layperson to learn about mysticism, perhaps Christian mysticism, and mm-hmm. what kind of usefulness can reading Christian mysticism have to a, a person who is not religious? Well, it can shake them out of their. Um presuppositions it can shake them out out of their you know their secular um their secular arrogance i think in mm. there's there's a, there's a tendency that you find in um you know in with you know educated uh, clever people in um you know countries like the united states to think of religious people as you know a, a bit frail minded or or dim or deluded or stupid and i think that's um that's a huge mistake. I think the for as long as there has been, uh, the, as long as there have been human beings <laughs> and human beings in forms of society, there has been religion, right? Of whatever, uh, whatever kind. Usually, I mean, there's been a, there's been a, a strong sense of cosmology of the cosmos being understood in a certain way, and then practices, rituals connected with that cosmos, whatever they might be. Right. And then we just think about the vast sweep of, say, Neolithic remains in Northern Europe, and they were obviously, yeah, this was part of that that, that practice. As to reading, I would say, um, I mean, a book that I strongly recommend is uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, scholar called Bernard McGinn, and Bernard McGinn teaches at the University of Chicago, and there's a book called The Essential Writings of Christian Mysticism, which I strongly, strongly recommend, because also the mystical tradition is a tradition that uh, where these texts circulated in, um, in fragments, mm. and they're often fragments that were copied in different languages and circulated in... It was like kind of mixtapes, uh, uh, yeah. med- medieval mixtapes. These, yeah. these texts were just... They'd be copied, recopied... Uh, often we have, you know, we we have the we have texts that were written, say, in medieval French, uh, which we, the only thing we have that survives is, is a Middle English translation that was translated from a Latin translation, and uh, these things were fragments that circulated like little samples. So, McGinn's book is um, an extraordinary text where he puts together hundreds of very very small chunks of mystical texts with really useful summaries and that's where i begin and if you're going to go to the um um deeper than that uh there's two things to really read right the the, the first thing is um there's someone called dionysius or the pseudo dionysius who wrote we don't know who he was that was just the name that he gave himself because it was the name that was the given to the the one person that saint paul Converted to Christianity when Paul went to Athens, allegedly. And uh, Dionysius writes a text called the Mystical Theology, which mm. is it, it's, the, it's the first text where we get the exploration of apophatic theology, negation, the idea that we cannot 
articulate a relationship to God directly. It has to be done negatively by pulling things away. So language has to be has language has to turn on itself in order to express what cannot be expressed. So Dionysius, you can in McGinn's book, you can read that in like two three pages. Mm. It's the, the germ of it. And the second text, which is I would love people to to read. You just pick up any copy of of the Bible and you find the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. And the Song of Songs is uh, a love poem. It's a nuptial song spoken largely by a female protagonist called the Shulamit and uh, a male protagonist. And there's a whole cast of other characters in it. And it's, uh, it's about love, carnal, physical love and it's extremely beautiful and that was the basis for uh jewish mysticism uh from very very early on from the the time the hebrew bible was first put together in about uh 71 of the christian era when they began to pull the text together there was a debate whether we include this love song (laughs) in the Uh in in the in the bible and they did because uh it was really popular and then it becomes the basis for for Christian mysticism, it's that song is interpreted over and over again in different ways. And the love of the young woman for the young man becomes the love of uh, Christ for the church and the church for Christ. And then it also has a, uh, it develops within the Sufi tradition, Sufi mm-hmm. mystics pick up on the Song of Songs. And it's just, a, it's it's literally five, six pages in whichever translation. It's incredibly Wonderful. The last thing I'd recommend would be oh yeah, lots of other things I'd recommend. Three things okay, would be three. the Cloud of Unknowing, uh, 14th century text written in English in a, a Midlands dialect. We don't know who by, uh, but it was written for a, a 24-year-old. We know that, a 24-year-old to kind of assuage this young man's doubts. Uh, my great hero in this whole area is called is Julian of Norwich. Oh yeah, uh, and Julian of Norwich's showings are the first book in English by a woman that we know for sure. And the book that I'm writing has a huge long discussion of Julian. I love Julian very very intensely. And the last thing would be um, Meister Eckhart. Eckhart was the um, mm-hmm. the most extraordinary. Uh, uh, theologian who then the, the the first texts we have in in german are many of them are, are sermons by by eckhart where he was just you know he was just kind of you know he was just letting it rip with these novices in uh strasbourg and cologne and saying really wild stuff yeah and uh and he'd been chair of theology at the university of paris and so in a sense he was untouchable but then he was condemned as a Condemned for heresy posthumously a year after he was, year after he died. So he got into trouble in the end. But those are, yeah, Cloud of Unknowing, Meister Eckhart, Julian of Norwich, The Song of Songs, and uh, Dionysius. That will keep people busy for a while. Yeah, I think that'll occupy them for at least (laughs) a, a semester's worth of time. So who who are some of the best writers on a purely writing level, like as stylists, from the history of philosophy, the, the people that you like to read the most in terms of 
writerly craft? You could say there are two, well, they'd be bookends, bookends, uh, and the bookends would be Plato and Nietzsche. That, that's, that would be the, the answer. But to kind of fill that out, it would be to say that the, um, most people think of philosophy as, uh, as monologue. So right. someone speaking, reasoning, uh, advancing arguments, advancing evidence for those arguments, and um, and if you like, lecturing. And the first philosopher we have with abundant evidence of that is Aristotle. And Aristotle is very uh, very persuasive and very dull, I think. Um, and uh, you know, the writing kind of lulls you into a sense that you just end up repeating what Aristotle says. Mm. And he writes directly. What interests me more are forms of indirect expression. So Plato is, you know, so th- we can begin with that. We say Plato uh, never writes in his own name. He uses characters. He's writing drama because he's at war with uh, forms of drama that existed in Athens, notably tragedy and also comedy. And um, he, yeah, there are 27 dialogues by Plato and the name Plato only appears twice in those 27 dialogues. And uh, amusingly in the, the dialogue, which is called the Phaedo, where Socrates, the, his great hero, uh, is takes the hemlock and uh, kills himself. Plato is absent because he was not well. So, mm. to that extent, he have ex- extreme kind of literary conceit already in the beginnings of philosophy. So, indirect style is often better. And then the other, the, the other end of the, you know, few thousand years later. Uh, I guess I would say uh, Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche is um, is particularly interesting because people can, you know, read Nietzsche when they're 14 and get something out of it and maybe get it all wrong, but they get something out of it because it's so powerful. And um, and yet you can go back to it, as, as I've gone back to it over the years, and you're increasingly impressed by the, the kind of... Um, the rigor of Nietzsche, and he's brilliant when he's tearing things to pieces. Mm. So I'd recommend, you know, some, reading something like Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals. So if you put, say, contemporary, let's say, the contemporary ideology of things like social justice or morality or whatever it might be, and you just set Nietzsche on that for <laughs> the second essay, Genealogy of Morals, it's brilliant. He just tears it to pieces. He had some really crazy ideas constructive ideas like eternal return and the revaluation of all values but Nietzsche is when Nietzsche is uh tearing things down it's incredibly impressive and there's something uncontrolled about about Nietzsche which I really like that you know he's writing he's writing at the limit of here's someone who's at the edge of kind of you know syphilitic madness and there is something you know you you really feel this is a person who knows that they've got very little time and they have to write four books of the next the next three months before they (laughs) before they finally go mad so yeah i I think i there has been there have been i think all the all the kind of really good philosophers the kind of major philosophers happen to be exquisite stylists most of them i mean yeah descartes was a you know wrote a ballet i mean you know rousseau wrote opera pieces so in a sense the 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 idea of philosophy as the an academic 
idea of philosophy as someone who writes journal articles and books and teaches in a university is a very recent uh, yeah. idea. Philosophers were often doctors, very often doctors, or courtiers. They they lived within a court system. Someone like Leibniz was a was a courtier, and so um, they weren't academics. The first professor in the history of philosophy was really Kant, and I've got a lot to say about him. He was a yeah, he was a bad writer. Oh, was but, he? But a great thinker. Well, that's yeah. something I was going to ask you actually. Is uh, who who is somebody like the the first thing that I think of personally is I've tried to read Deleuze and Guattari like oh yeah a million times, and I I know there's something in anti Oedipus for me. I can just sense it, but I can't get through the density of the text. And that's not bad writing. That's just dense writing. But who who is a philosopher? Maybe it's Kant who has great ideas, but whose prose doesn't really serve the ideas as well as it Oh, right. Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's, a, that's a good... A, a lot of them, actually, a lot of them would have been better in other forms. And maybe, I think Deleuze and Guattari is it's often better to... Um, a book like Thousand Plateaus. I mean, I remember reading that really fast in a kind of semi-attentive way. I wasn't really paying attention. I was just letting it wash over me that would be a great audio book actually <laughs> you know you just have it on for hours when you were you know right. in your pilates class it would be yeah as for philosophers who their writing didn't get the was a kind of blockage i mean the the person that i think of who's a, a philosopher that i'm very attached to uh who was also a nazi is uh, is heidegger Right. And, uh, and Martin Heidegger, um, I think if Heidegger had been a sound artist, <laughs> or if, 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 if Heidegger had been uh, Stockhausen, or if Heidegger had, you know, been a student of Stockhausen, taken LSD and joined Cannes, then <laughs> he would have been able to make his points much more effectively. Because in a sense, what Heidegger's tried to say is something really, really simple, which is that we are not in our heads we are out there in the space of the world. We are environmental beings. Our being is being in the world. Mm -hmm. So he makes this, you know, in a sense, the, going back to what I was saying earlier, the key thought in Heidegger is, is ecstasy. But it's a word that he uses very rarely, and he produces the most baroque and awful jargon to describe this very simple thought. So, I think that he's a very good example of someone who you could you could turn into a you could turn Heidegger into a piece of music and it would make the point better than he did. Really funny. Yeah, I think it's just true with, with, with Heidegger, I think it really is, you know, you could think about or you could think about Heidegger spatially as terms of, you know, what an artist like someone like Paul Clay was doing. Mm. Uh, I mean it, it's it's incredibly obvious. And, and Heidegger's problem was that he, he decided, for good reasons, not to use the existing philosophical vocabulary, but to invent his own words. Right. And, uh, and that's, in, in German, that, that sounds weird and kind of uh, almost nursery-like. In English, it sounds terrible. So um, if you like, this very simple line of thought is obscured by, ah, oh, Another way of thinking about it would be to say that if you, and this is true, I mean, this is this, what I'm saying is kind of, can be, there's evidence for this. Terence Malick, the director, um, I mean, Malick was a philosophy student 
um, at Harvard and then at Oxford, and he wanted to do a PhD on Heidegger. And uh, his advisor was someone called Gilbert Ryle, who wrote a book called The Concept of Mind. Ryle was the most influential philosopher in the UK, and he used to keep a, a map in a map of Britain in his office. He used to put flags on the on the cities and towns where he'd appointed people he was that kind of <laughs> idiot and he said as a the young malik young terry malik goes to rather says i want to do this thing on Heidegger. and he's oh, he goes nonsense that's not philosophy off you go and he came back to the states he taught uh he taught as an adjunct to mit for a year teaching a class on heidegger translated heidegger's essence of reasons a, a short but important text and then he, he went to film school in los angeles I had no idea that that he had this yeah. background. He was a graduate student, and he, he yeah, so he's already you know, he begins. I think at Los Angeles, is it called the Los Angeles Film Academy? I forget what it's called. The same the year it opened, which was mm-hmm. I think also David Lynch turned up the same year. But Malik would have been a good bit older, and so he you know he'd done done philosophy. He realized what his interests were, but he then decides to um, you know render them cinematically and if i mean badlands is is great but i think the if you like his most heideggerian film i think is is days of heaven and then thin red line i think are really you can see well if if heidegger had yeah he's making heideggerian points uh-huh. in, in yeah yes days of heaven is my favorite malik film it's one of my favorite films period i think mm-hmm. uh, what's heideggerian in in days of heaven the idea i mean the in, it's the cinematography really it's it's the the idea of being you know, plunged into, if you like, the ecstasy of, of of color and landscape and vision and character and all of that is, I mean, that's Heideggerian. So in a sense that cinema itself uh, is a way of pulling us out into a different experience of reality. And that's, in a way, is Heidegger's point. Heidegger's point is that we're not in our heads and we have this ridiculous idea that thinking is in the head and the thinking is in the head takes place in a, a mind and that mind's attached to a brain mm. and that brain is kind of what does the work. And that isn't how it is. First and foremost, we, we, we live in the world, things show up in the space of the world and what we can do, yeah, I had not thought about this, but I think, I think cinema could be thought about as that type of ecstasy when you are, in a dark room, you know, with a bunch of other people back in the days when that used to be the way of watching films and you are plunged into uh, a vision of, uh, of things and you're lost uh, for a period of time in, in that world. world. Yeah. yeah. He's made some, you know, uh, less great films, but... Um, I, I had a pet fantasy about Malik, before, and I, it definitely has been blown to bits by what you've just told me about him being a philosopher, but that like, you know, since he was so sort of elusive and, and didn't speak that much, that one day there would be an interview with him and it would come to light that he was basically Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think he is. I think there's, I think it's also, uh, uh, yeah, I, I've got, uh, there are people with big problems with Malik and I understand it. And there's a kind of, it, it's a very kind of boy, nerdy type of cinema. I remember having a real argument with someone, which uh, which I lost, I'm happy to say, about uh, about how bad Malik was and how much better uh, Harmony Corinne was. Okay, <laughs> and and it was an argument that turned on on Spring Breakers, and 
And, uh, I, and and I came to the view that actually Spring Breakers is a very Heideggerian film too. Is it? Is it? Yeah. It's yeah. a kind of, you know, and you just plunged out there with these, you know, former Disney, you know, teens in this uh, bizarre Florida world. Anyway. Yeah. I think Harmony Korine's ultimate philosophical statement is Trash Humpers. Have you ever seen Trash Humpers? I have seen Trash Humpers. <laughs> I wonder which philosopher that most uh, parallels. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> Is there is there a philosopher who has most inspired, or maybe it's more than one, most inspired your actual approach to life, to living? Yeah, I'll answer that in, in, in this way. It would be that, I mean, there's the history of philosophy, and there are different ways of conceiving the history of philosophy. There are all these philosophers and all these different traditions, blah, 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 blah. But often what interests me are the people who turn people on to philosophy, turn young people onto philosophy. And usually in a department, if you're lucky, um, there'll be somebody who's just a really good teacher, uh, inspirational teacher. And very often those people don't write, uh, can't write, don't write very much, and uh, often aren't well-known at all. Right. So when I, when I teach, when I teach my day job, teaching at the, the new school, I teach... Um, mainly kind of master's students and some PhD students. And invariably, someone has had an effect on them. Someone has found them when they were 18, 19, and has spoken to them, and it's resonated. And And they'll say, have you heard of, you know, Jane Smith? And I say, no, I haven't, because, you know, uh, or Joe Smith, whatever it might be. And it's those people that interest me. And in my case, there was a, a, a man called uh, Frank Chioffi, and Frank Schioffi was uh, an American, uh, a New Yorker, actually, from uh, grew up near Washington Square, uh, speaking a Neapolitan accent. His parents both, a Neapolitan dialect. His parents both died. He was brought up by his grandparents. He has a really weird childhood. He then winds up in the U.S. Army after the Second World War uh, in Normandy in the kind of clear-up operation. Um, and saw a lot of things and spent a lot of time in Paris hanging out with a lot of interesting writers like Richard Wright, I think, and people like that in Paris and listening to good music. And then on the GI Bill, went to, somehow got himself into to Oxford. And this guy was six foot five, a giant of a man. And disheveled was, doesn't begin to describe Frank. He used to wear, he never used to wear laces in his shoes. He used to wear his pajamas under his clothes at all times. And he used to talk about this. And when I finally got my first academic job when I was 28, uh, I, was, I was speaking to Frank and he said, you know, what's the, have you got any advice for, you know, so yeah, yeah, always check your fly. <laughs> that was his advice. Always check your fly, which is actually really good advice. But, yeah. the, but Frank wrote almost nothing, was, uh, isn't really very well known. But to be in a room with him um, when I was, you know, 22, 23, it was, it, I, I both, I felt both terrified because, you know, I was actually frightened by his physical presence because he was like a big guy and he was saying these wild things and incredibly excited. And I had no real idea where this would go. He didn't, he didn't use notes he would um, secrete bits of text in his um, 
about around his person. He would pull out bits of paper from his top pocket and read a quote, a quotation from Tolstoy or something. And we think, wow. And then uh, you'd see him walking home. It was quite a long walk home and he had a, an early version of a Walkman on. Mm. And I was, and I always wondered what was on the Walkman. What's he listening to? Maybe some, you know, yeah, maybe. I don't know, what would it, what would it be? Could be some, you know, classic Pink Floyd or something like that. Who knows? No, I found out years later that Frank was listening to recordings of Frank speaking. Uh. <laughs> he was listening to himself. Uh, but so behind people that get interested in philosophy, there, there's, there's very often someone who's had that effect, the kind of those un, uncounted, unnamed, right. uncelebrated people. And those are the ones that really deserve all the, or the credit, you know, who, who give you a certain book and say, you know, I think, I think you're going to like this or this says this and try this. And, um, and then when you, when you're done with that, I'll give you something even better. And I believe that's called education, <laughs> you know? What kind of a reader were you as a teenager? Bad one. I wanted to, uh, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to make some th- certain things clear is that I was a very bad, um, student uh i was um i had an accident when i was 18 years old i i grew up uh when i describe this to students now it sounds like i'm you know a character in a dickens novel but i grew up around factories my dad was a sheet metal worker and uh he then became a foreman and manager in so i grew up around factories every weekend we go to the factory and i was working in factories uh from 14 onwards uh the weekends or whenever and it was just what you did and um i was working in a pharmaceutical factory when i was 18 and uh my hand was nearly severed this Mm. scar here and um it's a really really long story and i details are kind of irrelevant but they're you know not to me they're not but they're they're long anyway but that accident that 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 trauma at the age of 18 was a kind of reset of my mind. Something happened. So, so this is quite interesting in the sense in which we're used to the idea or we think that uh, because of the influence of Freud and people like that, that, you know, what happens to you as a young child, as a baby, as an infant, these are your fundamental experiences that basically, you know, it's everything that happened between zero and five. That gives you your kind of map of your sexual proclivities and this and that and that's that might be right it might not be right uh jean-paul sartre had a different view which is that uh that who you are as a self is dependent upon a decision that you make Mm. and when you make that decision you begin uh you make a you, you make a radical decision to begin what he called a fundamental project and he his example of this is is another someone else that people could read would be Jean Genet, who I read a lot uh, uh, a long time ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Genet is so important for also for musical culture, for the Smiths, for all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Genet, um, at the age of 14, becomes a thief, becomes a thief. And at that point, when he's stealing stuff for the first time, he says, yeah, I am a thief. <laughs> and at that point, Sartre says he becomes Genet. And what happened to him before is of no consequence. It's when he becomes a thief that Mm -hmm. it becomes. And I think about that in the sense in which 
at 18, I had a, an unfortunate accident which reset things. And uh, I, I didn't become a completely different person, but I became a significantly different person. And it was really bad for a year or so. And then I began to really read and I really began to uh, see that I was uh, there was a whole world out there which I could I could get hold of through libraries um, and through bookshops, and I gorged myself on it. And then I went back into education. I left school with um, uh, no qualifications. I had a, an O level in geography when I was sixteen, huh. and so I went back into education when I was twenty, reading voraciously. And then uh, someone said, you know, you should try and go to a university, to a, to a college. So I did that, and I went when I was 22. And I'd also recommend that, is that when you've read late and you really think this is, you really see what the stakes of this are. Uh, and, and also, I'd done, uh, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing as a, a, in a misspent use, mainly. You were kind mainly, of... Kind of punk rocker, right? Yeah, I was a punk. Yeah, so mainly mainly drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> we, were, we were pretty anti-sex uh, on the whole. But the um, so I'd done all that. So when I went to university, I was three, four years older than the other kids, and um, I just I just ate it up. I, I spent all my time in the library and all my time finding people who were interesting to talk to. Back then, in a provincial English university, uh, it was, you could, you know, people had their doors open and you could wander in and just ask them, you know, what to read. And, yeah. uh, and they tell you. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, those were the years. That's when I really, you know, you, you know, liberation is something that happened, that happened through, for me through, through reading, through wandering around libraries, Sometimes stealing things from libraries, borrowing albums from libraries, recording them onto cassette, memorizing poetry, memorizing plays, and then just and then using that to to kind of take on the world, you know. Yeah, so this is it as an act of kind of defiance. So for me, there's always been a direct. Um, uh, I don't really see it. You know any difference between my interests in you know music and my interests in you know philosophy? They're part of the same. They're different modes of the same, same, same being. As far as I'm concerned, I think that not that education is wasted on the young. That is that is to some extent true, but I really, I what I really hate is the is the kind of climate of indifference or, or, or cynicism mm-hmm. around say academic life. This is. This is precious stuff, and um, people like me get paid to think for a living, and it's an enormous privilege, right? It's an enormous privilege, and you get to to work with people and to develop their, help them develop their minds, and that is, it's wild. It's wild, brilliant stuff, and um, I think you know we take that for granted too much, and that um, yeah, that saddens me because it really is precious what we're doing in those. It is, yeah. yeah. But the, the course of education became quite rote. It's like get out of high school, go to college. Yeah, I think yeah. maybe that's that's crumbling a little bit more, perhaps now. Hopefully, the pandemic has. I mean, it's probably not had any good effects at all. But I think at least there's that that step back, that uh, that step aside, and people being forced back onto their onto their heels, and also realizing that um, 
you know, uh, kind of plague is what we do. That I mean, it's interesting, you know, the relationship between philosophy and plague, yeah. philosophy and pandemic. That um, I mean, I, I had a, a, an idea years ago um, when I was writing a, a weird history of philosophy called the Book of Death Philosophers, and um, and I I kept noticing how moments of philosophical innovation were uh, happened around or after wars and um, there's an awful lot of activity around wars so the 30 years war in the german speaking lands which has many consequences and an awful lot of death but uh descartes was an was a was a merc- was a soldier in that war and then retreats to a you know a warm room stove in netherlands and begins to produce a, a new work which begins entirely from from nothing from clear and distinct ideas based on a method of radical doubt mm. as a response to the confusion of the world of war so the idea of philosophy and war is is interesting and you know you could say the last great generation of philosophers in certainly in in, in Europe were all linked to the war in one way or another mm-hmm. uh, lived mm-hmm. through it were children during it were writing against it in response to it people like Habermas or that whole fantastic generation of, of French thinkers from Deleuze, Guattari, Foucault, Derrida all of whom were defined by the war in one way or another but we forgot about plague um, yeah, yeah and there's there is there's a way in which you know when um when plague happens then everything stops we we we, we retreat to our cells and we um we think and write. Everything crumbles away. Plague strikes, and we are then invited to rethink what is significant. So it's a you know it's a very philosophical moment. And but the but the thing that terrifies me not terrifies yeah it does terrify terrify me in a way that the um, you know until twenty twenty the history of say the twentieth century uh, was one where we you know we we were quite good at remembering say, the First World War, the Second World War. Um, First World War, the Great War, this was important. Things changed, you know. Right. Uh, modernism develops out of the First World War, so on and so forth. But we forgot about the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu kind of just wasn't in view at all. And the two things were linked. And um, so you wonder, well, what is, how is this going to be remembered? How is this going to be memorialized? Will we just forget about this? I, mm-hmm. I wonder. I think there's a real question in my mind about that that in a sense this is um something the the pandemic is um releases or, or yeah yeah the, the pandemic has, has opened up something archaic has reawakened something archaic about us that actually connects us back to forms of social life which uh, our ancestors experienced right they would have experienced some form of plague or other and um, but can we hold that in our minds? And and is it going to make us better, or is it going to make us worse? I don't know. Yeah, there is something archaic and old worldish about undergoing a plague. I hadn't really thought of that. Mm-hmm. Have there been have there been writers, or are there writers that you think are particularly useful in times of not just plague but isolation, like in this in, in the moment we've been going through? Who who is good to read? Well, I mean, this is where, you know, uh, I was sitting at a Christmas lunch uh, a couple of days ago 
with a bunch of arts administrators and they were all complaining about, you know, what a terrible period of time they'd had and, you know, theatres being closed and live performance and this and that. And I just said, look, you just made a, a terrible career decision. You should have done philosophy. You can just, <laughs> you can just sit in a room on your own and think. Think about it's, it, yeah. It's really easy. And so, so in a sense, with me, nothing, nothing really changed. And everything about philosophy in a sense is you know uh it, it's thinking in 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 isolation in the most extreme form you know you've got the the idea of the imprisoned philosopher boethius's consolations of philosophy which is one of the most continuously read books in history i mean plato aristotle these other characters they they disappear for millennia they you know the they're kept in the University of Baghdad, the manuscripts, they come back into right. uh, Italy at a certain point in the Middle Ages. But but Boethius was continuously read, and they've got a philosopher who's in prison and in isolation, in a cell. He's going to be killed. He, he's, he's, he's pummeled to death um, by the Ostrogoth king Theodoric. Eventually, he writes, he has this vision of philosophy in his cell and um, who offers consolation. So... I, to that extent, it's uh, timely, I suppose. You know, the uh, there's something about the there's something about philosophy and and pandemic and isolation and seclusion which really works. And and in a way, not so much now, but in 2020, there was a there was a period of time where I was saying, you know, told you so. You know, yeah, you're going to be at home. And you're, you know, you're forced to think about things and not pretend that you're busy and constantly traveling to pointless places, you know, for yeah. no reason in the name of work. Um, and, uh, and that's produced some strange effects, like, you know, Nina Simone's gum, where Warren Ellis was stopped from moving around the world and then forced back on his own resources and in a very interesting way. Very broad here, but... Who's a favorite novelist of yours who perhaps works philosophical thinking into their work particularly well? I've got very um, unreconstructed, ordinary tastes, so it would be um, James Joyce. Yeah. For me, Joyce's Ulysses is, it's not the book, but it's one of the books, and um, I appreciate it more and more. I've read it a number of times. I have a few editions of it. I've listened to it as an audio book wow. a couple of times, actually, which actually works. I mean, Joyce really works through the ear. Mm -hmm. I used to have recordings of, uh, of Finnegan's Wake um, that I got from libraries back when I was you know, in 19, when I was 21. You get recordings of um, like Cyril Cusack reading mm. Finnegan's Wake. And I mean, and Joyce was clearly working orally. This, this, these attacks only really worked to be listened to. So to that extent, you know, I'm a big fan of audio books actually, because I like, I also like the way in which uh, the ears respond to words. I think there's something, uh, I mean, reading is very important. I love reading. I read a lot, but you know, um, another thing which is archaic is that, um, for example, in somewhere like classical Athens, it's unclear what literacy levels would have been. I mean, amongst, say, you know, the privileged people, the citizens, the male citizenry, they may have been 
40, 50% could read. Yeah. They listened to people read. You didn't actually need to read. You were read to. And, uh, and that idea of being read to, I find uh, quite interesting, actually. And Joyce works very well in that regard. So Ulysses would be, I mean, just a, I mean, just the, the concentrated intelligence of, of Joyce and his, his sensuousness, I think is, mm-hmm. yeah, the sensuousness of Joyce, I think I find uh, increasingly, increasingly powerful with, with the years. <clears throat> 20 years ago, I would have said Beckett, you know. Yeah. I, I, I found, I, since I've, I've almost found, I've almost, you know, I've exhausted Beckett. I've gone back to it so much and it's... Um, so Beckett is for me is ultimately too Protestant, and what I like about what I like about Joyce is is kind of you know is is completely uneasy aestheticized Catholicism. There's mm. a kind of and it, it, it's a kind of maximalist. He leaves nothing out, and um, and there's a kind of um, yeah, just as, as a sheer excessive exercise of intelligence which can master any literary form and inhabit it and abandon it and move on to the next choices choices where I, where I go what do you find to be the philosophic sort of preoccupations of ulysses i think with a um a novel uh, um if if ulysses is a novel i mean it allows you to you know inhabit a number of different points of view so i mean there's a famous scene at the end of ulysses where Stephen Dedalus, um, who is some version of the younger Joyce and Leopold Bloom, um, you know, the, uh, you know, who in many ways is a character that Joyce would have experienced in Trieste, a much more commercial cosmopolitan city than, than Dublin mm. with a larger, with a, uh, a larger Jewish community. So that idea of the, of the uh, of Ulysses, the Jewish Ulysses, in the form of of Bloom, and they um, when they finally say goodbye after their hundred page weird third person set of descriptions of Joyce, they're 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 described as urinating in the garden, and their streams of piss intersecting, <laughs> crossing, right. and and you know you could say well there's something about that that uh, at that point Joyce is you know is part Bloom part. Daedalus and yeah. and part his father, part and part part Molly, and it allows. I think that the novel allows the inhabitation of different, yeah, different different personages. This idea of the omniscient author, you know, Thomas Hardy, like looking down upon a cast of characters, is one way. But I guess what I love about Joyce is the the way he's able to describe. Uh, what it's like to be inside other people's heads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just to, you know, so that, that ability has to do interior interior monologue, stream of consciousness, as it used to be, stream of consciousness, as it was called. And, um, but the novel is, the novel for me is a, a, a raft. It's a kind of a lifeboat on which um, things wash up in the 18th century. So the novel is a kind of strange, strange literary form. You know, you could say, what's the first novel? Well, it's probably it's probably Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, um, yeah. early 18th century, then through to, you know, Robinson Crusoe and then Fielding and Richardson and that 
that so the rise of the novel is the rise of a a, a commercial uh, what we call capitalist society now uh, uh, a mercantile society and uh, where, which is a world which is kind of big and spread out and full of individuals who have a fragmentary connection yeah. to it and the novel kind of the, it's the history of the novel is a history of that world which right. to some extent we still live in but I like novels and I've read a lot of them whatever words said against the novel he said but in terms of reading for me, I mean, my uh, uh, one thing that I've done since I was a student and I still do is I love reading plays. Mm. And I love reading plays. And I've written a lot about uh, Greek tragedy, about Shakespeare, and so on and so forth. Um, but when I'm reading a play, um, I can imagine, in a sense, everything else can be kind of can be fitted in. It gives me a kind of uh, a relaxed ability to kind of put together, compose the whole world. Yeah. And so when after when after when I see plays that I like, I'm usually disappointed because I'm happy just reading them and then Im- imagining what they what they look like. So, but I but I think that rather than novels in terms of the way i think about things i would recommend reading you know some ibsen some some yeah. chekhov some beckett some sarah kane some people like that and also i think the the uh nothing i want to mention before we uh before the hour gets too late is in terms of philosophy i think that we can learn a lot from comedy Okay, uh, and humor, and I think that the you know, so in many ways, the you know, who are the most important philosophers in the United States? Uh, I'd probably say the Marx Brothers. Uh-huh. You know, for sure. me, the Marx Brothers. You know, everything that you want to know about the United States is compressed into uh, even the racism is compressed into those uh, movies like Duck Soup, yeah, uh, Horse Feathers, and that wild. Uh, you know, immigration story, that sense of a language which is a language that would have just been, you know, that, let's say that the Marx brothers, Mr. and Mrs. Marx were speaking Russian or Yiddish or whatever, and then they take on this language and then it takes off and then they and they take to the stage, then they take to Hollywood. And that sense in which the and the um the funniness of the Marx I can remember that watching yeah. the Marx brothers for the first time when I was uh, when I was 14 and that that uh that really that sheer exercise of intelligence is is hugely important and i say that so i think great comedy i mean i mean you know people might not be interested in philosophy but they're probably interested in comedy and i think they're doing the same thing mm-hmm. right i remember you were a great fan of um tim and eric right oh sure yeah 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 that's 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 completely philosophical what they're doing. <laughs> how do you, how, how so? Because I find that I, I can see the philosophical bent in the Marx Brothers, especially in their sort of Jewishness going up against the sort of mainstream establishment society that happens in their movies so much. And I can mm-hmm. see it a lot in, in the one-liner, that the Borscht Belt comedian, you know, mm-hmm. basically aphoristic. Tim and Eric, um, I love, of course. What's, what's philosophical about Tim and Eric? imagined worlds huge thought experiments you know 
the the construction of the construction of coherent but completely counterintuitive lines of thought right and there is something i think philosophy at its best is the you know and philosophers when they're interesting which should happen more often than it does are kind of you know minds on the loose in the way in which good comedians are are minds on the loose you're not sure where this is going to go and um and so you know yeah so i think you know uh philosophy is like stand-up comedy except you don't you don't have to stand up and it's often not funny uh-huh, right like a lot of comedy <laughs> like a lot of comedy and i like the way in which you can um I, I suppose i've learned a lot from philosophy teachers who've used comedic forms to great effect and over the years like like francioffi he was incredibly funny and that was part of his terror is uh you know he would yeah he'd start swearing and we thought that was just great uh-huh. yeah anyway <laughs> well now i'm thinking about the place of of absurdity the place for absurdity in philosophy mm-hmm. and i'm not sure what i mean by that all over i mean it's 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 you know it's, in a sense the uh to get the to get a philosophical thought going you've got to enter into an absurd thought experiment like a, like a joke so, you know, Descartes, uh, what's one example? When Descartes is um, trying to get the, the, the argument of the, the meditations and the discourse on the method going, he says, well, yeah, look at these people out the window. Look at them. Are they, are they people? Are they, he says that they could be automata is the word he uses. In, they could be automata. And then he begins to run with that idea. Mm. It's a comedic structure. Right, the idea that we can we can reduce all all the creatures that we see to well, they could all be robots, they could all be unconscious, they could all be you know creatures from another planet, uh, and in which case, how would there be certainty? How would there, how could there be a basis to knowledge? So often, the a philosophical argument will proceed like a kind of a stand up routine mm-hmm. by by suspending and inverting common sense reality and then twisting it around. And I guess what I like about a lot of good comedians is their ability to to take something like observation, basic observation, and then to twist the lens of that observation. So you, you're not sure, you know, whether up is down or down is up. It's that classic setup of, it's like setup, then subversion, setup, then subversion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, philosophy can be a kind of a comic universe. Why not? I'd like to talk about poetry a little bit. Okay. Um, who, who, who's the favorite poet of yours? I mean, the, the poet that I've had the most um, sort of drama with over the years is T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And I think T.S. Eliot for me is um, un, unresolved would be one way of putting it. That, the, that for me, in my, you know, stupid late 70s, early 80s way of looking at the world, you know, culture... Uh, meant reading the wasteland and the the footnotes to the wasteland and finding the books that Eliot referred to, which which I did. I duly I ju- did that. Bought wow. you know, a ritual and romance by Jesse Weston. I still have a copy of that somewhere. And um, Fraser's Golden Bough. And I thought, well, this is mm-hmm. this is education. This is culture. You know, this is what I've got to do. And then feeling 
horribly let down by Eliot for all sorts of reasons. And then the poet, which, and it's, it's always kind of love affairs. Uh, yeah. Uh, was the German poet Hölderlin. I read Hölderlin uh, when I was learning German and I, I, I really love Hölderlin's, uh, his late poems, his hymns, because he's also going insane at that point. I don't which, know. Uh, I don't. I don't know him. Uh, Hölderlin. Yeah. Hölderlin's an extraordinary poet, and um, you know he was actually given to extracts of Hölderlin were given to German soldiers in the First World War for their backpacks, which was mm. very odd to think about. And um, and then in my uh, late twenties, I discovered Wallace Stevens. Oh yeah, and and I wrote a book about Wallace Stevens in two thousand five. The um, book of mine that certainly got the least attention of any of the books because mm. poetry is a hard sell. But it's a book that I really like. And Stevens, I decided, well, that was it, and it was all there. And it became, you know, in a sense, poetry was not ideas about the thing. Well, it was ideas about the thing, but not the thing itself. And I was looking at the way in which Stevens was constructing poetically a complete philosophical vision and um and then i began to read people like elizabeth bishop mm. uh, in relation to that and had a lot of fun and then in the last couple of years i found myself drifting back to t.s Eliot and trying to make sense of the poem his last poem four quartets right. and trying to make sense of that which has always been for me a uh, not a mystery but uh, i've never really known where i am with it although i, I love it and i read it over and over again and um, so this book on mysticism, there is a a big chunk on four quartets, and I I kind of have tried to make my peace with Eliot. Uh, so I think probably Eliot, and also the fact that he stops writing poetry. You know, he's when he writes four quartets, Little Gidding, the last part, he's done. That's his last published poem, nineteen forty two. He lives. He was in his. Uh, early 50s at that point mm. he, he lived for another 20 25 years 23 years didn't write didn't publish anything was there ever any did he ever say why he was done he just he said, said what he needed to say he said what he needs to say and then he went back to running faber publishing house and uh and his last years he actually had a, a quite nice life and what also is going on in um Elliot is this interests me, is poetry which is trying to push through poetry. So for Eliot, the poem is not the thing. The poem is an inadequate way of expressing the religious intuition that he wants to articulate. So in a sense, Eliot is writing anti-poetry, mm. a poetry which is about language falling apart. So much of what, I mean, Eliot could write as clearly as George Orwell, he could do that. But in Four Quartets, he develops a, a, a language of contradiction, of negation and antithesis, which is bewildering. But he's trying to point at something that is beyond language, which has, for Eliot, the condition of music. Right. And he was thinking, Eliot was thinking, and this is, there's uh, some recent evidences, uh, has made this fairly clear, I think. He was thinking specifically uh, of Beethoven's late quartets, mm. and uh, he was listening to them at that time. So in a sense that what 
going back to where we started, Eliot was, amongst other things, a poet and was trying to write, was writing, wrote, wrote poetry with, with huge success. But what he was trying to do was to approximate to a condition of music, mm-hmm. which he couldn't himself achieve. So in a sense, uh, Eliot's poetry, if you, you read it in a certain way, it, it falls away and you then begin to hear what's behind it. Something like that. And I think that's, um, and that for him is, uh, is, is religion, specifically Christianity in this case. Do you have a way that you approach reading poetry when you're reading something new? Do you, we talked about sort of letting things wash over you. Um, or, yeah. or are you rigorous from the beginning when you're reading poetry? I look, I, I look, for, I used to more than now, I used to look for poets that I could um, fall in love with. And, um, and you know, then I would get um, disappointed when I couldn't, I remember reading Ashbury for years and I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't get that close. And then you start Mark Strand, I read Mark Strand for a couple of years. No, it just didn't happen. And so then I go back to Stephen. So often it's, there's a, I've got a quite small canon of things that I really, really love and I'll go back to. Yeah. And I'm always looking for something which is going to have that effect. And, uh, but then again, I find writers which, uh, so for example, in this new, new book, uh, there is a chapter or there's a, about 10 pages, probably longer than that on Annie Dillard. Uh-huh. Uh, who's a writer that I only read two years ago for the first time. And I read a uh, pilgrim at Tinker Creek and the book that absolutely blew my socks off was Holy the firm, mm-hmm. Holy the firm written in 1977 set in the Pacific Northwest. And it is, it's extraordinary. It's um, it's really, you know, it's completely, you can see the influence of Emerson and Thoreau, but she does something absolutely ferocious with language. And um, and so, yeah, I hadn't read a word of hers uh, more than two years ago. So then you become, oh, I'll fall in love with you and I'll read everything. And then you begin to... So for me, it's always about making things mine, you know, that you... Yeah. Poetry is like, this is my stuff. And I want to pull more things into my orbit and to make them my precious things that I can, I can show to people. Um, I don't know where we are with poetry, actually. I think it's, there's a sense in which, you know, what is more irrelevant and what is a harder sell than poetry. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of it about, I just wish people were more formalistic in terms of their, I guess I'm old fashioned in that way that I mean, yeah. I, when I was, when I was writing poetry, which was a long, long time ago, I um, became more more obsessed with form. I wanted to write villanelles and sestinas and different types of sonnet. And then um, the better I got at form, the uh, the less and less I had to say until I stopped. When I was 25, I stopped writing poetry. I read um, I read W.H. Auden and for the first time when I was 25 and I sort of thought, well, Auden seems to be able to do all of this Mm-hmm. pretty easily and so why bother i could just read i could just read Auden instead so i did that for a while yeah but, but for me there's something absolutely yeah privileged about the poetic word and um mm. uh, and for me it's about you know how would i put it again using a kind of earlier image um that the the poet is a kind of amalgam is is an amalgam like a piece of metal that can 
to confuse uh, and, and set fire to itself in certain in certain conditions. If there's some sense of history, some sense of a tradition that's being spoken from, and and the person's got some talent, right? And if that talent and that tradition are joined together in a way that extinguishes all personality, yeah, all identity, then poetry can happen, and um, and that's what interests me. And that's very kind of um, wrong and unfashionable because there is this, you know obsession with uh, identity in relationship to all forms of writing and it seems to me that the only the, the writers that i like are the ones who do everything they can to extinguish their identity yeah. as rigorously as possible of course it pops up and shows through but they're they're writing uh, at the service of the uh, a kind of fire which they can they can set light to they can they, they can be that that flame in the way in which, you know, um, I don't know, someone like um, Rambo. I mean, Rambo, Rambo does it in the Illuminations. Uh, do we have to care about Rambo's life, you know, in the kind of brothels and gutters of Paris or then, you know, right. in the, in the, in, you know, in all the sleazy stuff he was doing in Africa? No, he was able to do it in verse in for a very, very short period of time and catch fire. I think that's also what happens with music. The music, I think bands can be amalgams like that yeah. at certain points and it just catches fire. And this is a bit, a bit cheesy, I know, and I guess everybody must have had this thought in the last few weeks, but I was watching the Beatles, you know, the three-part Beatles thing. and Right. Because my family's in Liverpool, the Beatles were our boys and, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, but watching them and then, you know, at certain points, you realize that they realize that they had this amalgam. They could do this thing uh, as, a, as a band and only as a band. Yeah. Right. And they're all talented. They had their, they had their careers afterwards and all of that. And that's great. But they had that thing together that, uh, which is, you know, as, as simple as, you know, three part harmony and a, you know, a good, a good track, but they, um, they had that amalgamation. I think, no, so that's it. They, it just doesn't last for long. I think that a thing about them also is that they were unafraid to look silly in front of each other. So they could just kind of like prattle on with a chord and sing some nonsense words and suddenly mm-hmm. get back emerges or whatever it might be. I think there's a lack of self-consciousness that makes them able to um, yeah, to collaborate in that way. Maybe Maybe that's necessary for all kinds of creative acts you know, to kind of get outside of the self while you're doing it. I think so. It, I think it goes back to, you know, um, uh, an idea of, you know, surrender in a way that you've got to, you've got to right. give into. And with the music that I, I tried to do music over the years and I still do it and I mean, no one listens to it, but, and that's fine. But the, um, why I do it is in a way because there's a kind of submission to it. I like the, I like the process and I like the, the fact of putting something together that you don't know what it is, but then it will at a certain moment be right. And then you can kind of move with that. And that's still really exciting. So being an amalgam, setting fire to yourself or not, I think that's the question of, I mean, that's what reading, you know, reading can do. You can say well, reading is a history of people that have, have set fire to themselves. Mm. And you can, you can look at the, Look at the ash. Look at the you know. Look at the, uh-huh. look at the cinder trails, and that's uh, 
and and you can do that too if you have the ability and you're willing to immerse yourself in in history in in a sense of what this practice is I think that's true of that's just, that's true of everything and so i think the what's horribly wrong with the obsession with um identity and is the idea that that people have convinced themselves that everything turns on their their narrative right their yeah their their autobiographical story and um that's exactly not what it's about it's about taking that and then fusing it into something which is more than you and if you can you know if you can do that you can ignite for a certain period of time then uh, yeah and that's what i mean going back to you know i remember not warren ellis but the i mean uh i saw some great bands back in the day and um i was a fan of the fool and uh the fool were always marky smith was always sacking his musicians and um one of the splinter bands of the fall was the Nightingales, who had a you know a long and important career. Now I was going to see the Nightingales at a venue in London in 1981 or 82. I forget exactly when. And the support act was a new band, no one had heard of, and they came on stage, and they did a you know about a 30 minute, 40 minute set, and um, you know you you'd watched. Uh, you'd watch something ignite in front of you, and that was the birthday party. That was their second oh. their second gig in London, <laughs> and it was. And you saw. And what was good about that was it wasn't. There was Nick Cave, obviously, but but they were a band, and you really saw them function as yeah. a unit. Very and, much, uh, yeah. Beautiful to watch, and um, that's what it's about. Does this idea of identity tie back at all to the ideas around? being stuck in the head versus um yeah versus letting the world like we're we're not in the head the world is what actually happens to us yeah yeah, yeah. it's basically getting out of your head that's the that's the problem is that we are we're too much in in our heads and in a sense there's nothing particularly interesting <laughs> there's <laughs> uh there's kind of the same old stuff and you know it and we get confused because we there'll be someone like a, you know, a Joyce will appear and we'll imagine that that is explained by um, who he was and where he was from and the time that he was from. And these are just incidental facts, right? Right. But he was able to turn himself into that amalgam for a certain period of time. So I think it's about, I mean, you, you have to acknowledge, you know, who you are, you know, what you are and all of that and speak from that. Um, but then to um to destroy it to uh to mm. go to war with it to uh you know as simone Weil would say to to decreate it you have to pull pull that apart in order to um uh, serve something else um that's that's my philosophy it's not much but that's that's what <laughs> i think and uh, and so i see writing and reading i mean as as yeah you're trying to open up to something else and to let that occur let that happen and and serve it and let it let it resound yeah and uh, and then you can say this is really good why don't you read this <laughs> you know, this is you might like it and that's uh and that's the precious thing about reading is that the 
the circulation of recommendations and who you trust and who you don't trust and that's um that lovely you know economy of reading the way things are books are handed around i think is really really important Thanks to you, Simon, for your time and generosity in conversation. I hope this interview sparks some interest for all of you and um, that you'll seek out Simon's work now or just read more philosophy in general. It never hurts. This episode was recorded by me from my home in Los Angeles, California, while Simon was in his office in New York City. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller in Philadelphia and facilitated by Laris Kreslins, also in Philadelphia. The music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Garamani, a fellow Los Angelino. Um, now, one more thing, please, if you can, like, subscribe, and review this podcast on whichever platform you use. It really does help, I guess. So yeah, I'd appreciate it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.